In the last episode, The Empire Squirms Back, I talked about how Vermont State Senate Minority Leader Joe Benning ran as a Democrat in the past. My notes say 1988, and I thought I said 88, not 98. So, let's get it straight. Benning ran as a Democrat in 1988 and lost. He ran in 1998 and lost. He won in 2010 as a Republican and has been in office since then. This podcast is all about writing what's left in Vermont. But why do the politics of a tiny state even matter to begin with? Most Americans wouldn't even call Vermont a bit player. And in many ways, that's a fair assessment. Compare Vermont to its twin state, New Hampshire, which sees an influx of the nation's top politicos and presidential candidates every four years because it is home to the first presidential primary. No doubt, New Hampshire is a critical step on the path to the White House, whereas Vermont does not even figure. Vermont's political scene is indeed static. Patrick Leahy, the state's 79-year-old U.S. Senator, is the longest-serving member of the U.S. Senate. He was elected to this office years before my parents even met each other. 77-year-old former communist Bernie Sanders has been Vermont's other U.S. Senator since 2007. Prior to that, Sanders served as Vermont's at-large congressman from 1991 to 2007. So, Bernie first went to D.C. way back in 1991. Here's a fun fact. Vermont has been represented in the U.S. House of Representatives by one at-large congressional district since the 1930 census. It used to have two congressional districts, but it lost the second seat in 1930. Who occupies this seat now? 72-year-old Democrat Peter Welsh has held this office since 2007 when Bernie moved up to the U.S. Senate. For all its braggadocio as a super-woke progressive stronghold, Vermont has been represented in Congress for decades by ancient white men. Dinosaurs. So why does Vermont matter? For these three reasons. One, it is still a state with two U.S. senators, just like any other state. Two, it has an active voting population of just about 300,000 adults. And three, Vermont is an old state with the third oldest population in the nation. This affects the nature and amount of political activism and the kinds of legislators that can afford to run for local and state office. Most state representatives, especially on the right, are retirees. The combination of these three points makes Vermont the perfect laboratory for radical legislative experiments. Once deep-pocketed activists can implement their far-left policies in Vermont, they create a blueprint to then replicate the process in other states. Have you noticed how Vermont often makes national news for being the first to do this or that? This year, it was for passing the most radical pro-abortion law, enabling abortions to take place right up to the expected date of delivery. Last year, it was because the state approved the wholesale re-importation of U.S. prescription drugs from Canada, which is illegal according to federal law. Then we have the nation's only ACO all-payer healthcare experiment, 
run by a defiantly non-transparent organization that will soon have a budget of at least $1 billion thanks to no oversight by Montpelier. This is why Vermont politics matter. It is steadily destroying the economy off the state while turning Vermonters into lab rats. So why don't the people rise up and change the status quo? Does the local media play a role in preventing such change? In this episode, we will explore the role of media bias in keeping the state of Vermont deep blue. In 1971, Republicans made up about 26% of all journalists. By 2014, that number had dropped to 7%. In today's newsrooms, Democrats outnumber Republicans by 4 to 1. And this is true for every aspect of journalism, including business news. A study published last year by Arizona State University and Texas A&M University found that a mere 4.4% of financial journalists lean to the right of the political center. This ratio comes to 13 leftists for every one conservative. But this shocking lack of ideological diversity is no secret. The American public is well aware that our newsrooms are dominated by journalists who fall to the left of the center and moreover, that they overwhelmingly root for the Democratic Party. A Gallup poll found that 62% of Americans believe the news media is biased, and 66% of Americans believe that most news media do not do a good job separating fact from opinion. In contrast, only 42% of the public held this view back in 1984. Late last October, a Rasmussen report survey showed that 45% of all likely voters in the midterm elections believed that when most reporters write about a congressional race, they're trying to help the Democratic Party candidate to win. Now, critics would say that just because newsrooms are populated with reporters who tend to fall on the left, This doesn't mean that their individual political affiliations affect the way in which news is reported. But political scientist Tim Grossclose and economist Jeffrey Milo prove that it does. Grossclose and Milo published a famous study in 2005 titled Measure of Media Bias, in which they created a way to empirically measure the ideological slant of major U.S. media outlets. For this purpose, they only analyzed the news content and excluded all opinion and editorial writing, so commentaries, letters to the editor, etc. were not analyzed for the study. First, they devised a measure called PQ, or political quotient. PQ is measured on a scale of 0 to 100, and it measures the political ideology of members of Congress. Using congressional voting records, they created a scale in which someone like Speaker Nancy Pelosi scores close to 100, while conservative Republican Michelle Bachman has a PQ of zero. The average American voter, according to this study, has a political quotient of 50, so right in the middle. 
Grossclose explains that the American political center has been stable for the last 50 years or so. The average political quotient of American voters, he says, has remained within the range of 47 to 58, and usually it's been very near 50 in the years between 1960 and 2009. Then for their second step, the researchers created something called a slant quotient or SQ to denote the bias of every major media outlet. Here, bias is defined as the degree to which the views of the media outlet differs from the center of American political views. And what did they find? They found that all of the news outlets they examined, except for Fox News Special Report with Brett Baer and the Washington Times, Except for these two, all the other outlets received scores on the left. The New York Times and CBS Evening News were far to the left of center. Specifically, the average news report in the New York Times sounds like a speech given by Democratic Party politician Joe Lieberman, who has a political quotient of 74. Grossclose expanded on this important research in his 2012 book called Left Turn, How Liberal Bias Distorts the American Mind. And in this book, he concludes that this leftist bias or slant of the mainstream U.S. media shapes our politics by moving American citizens further to the left than they would otherwise vote. How much further to the left? He quantifies that. He states that media bias aids Democratic Party candidates by about 8 to 10 percentage points in a typical election. And he argues that without this bias, John McCain would have defeated Barack Obama in 2008 by a popular vote margin of 56% to 42%. In general, without this leftist media bias, Gross Close says that America would vote the way Texas does. So how does this all play out within the Vermont media space? The media market in Vermont is anemic with constant layoffs. While newspapers based in each major town are still hanging on, there is scarce original local reporting. The exception to this rule is a website called Vermont Digger, which was founded by a local reporter after she was laid off due to downsizing. Then there is Seven Days, a far-left weekly newspaper based in Burlington that's distributed every Wednesday, and they claim a circulation of about 35,000. Note that the publisher of Seven Days is the domestic partner of the state Senate president, who belongs to the far-left Progressive Party. Seven Days, as I've mentioned in a previous episode, employs an ideologue and shockingly hateful former blogger as their, quote, political columnist. The editorial pages of the major newspapers in Vermont demonstrate a distinct left-wing bias. This applies to the Burlington Free Press, the Addison County Independent or Addy Indy in the East, the Rutland Herald, which many locals dub as the Russian Herald in central Vermont, and the Brattleboro Reformer in the South. The most blatant leftist bias is found with VPR, the taxpayer-funded Vermont Public Radio. The most direct influence that the Vermont media exercises when it comes to elections is its role in crafting voter perceptions of candidates. 
by choosing which candidates to cover, how much coverage, and what kind of coverage each candidate should receive, they ensure that anyone running on the right of center starts off with a disadvantage. For example, in 2018, a realtor from the town of Manchester, Lawrence Zupan, had the audacity to challenge Bernie Sanders for his U.S. Senate seat. A VPR journalist, who always makes it a point to broadcast her disdain for the right, accused Zupan in an interview of conflating socialism with communism as a scare tactic. Both are, after all, distinctly separate political movements, she claimed. Soon after, she invited a caller onto the show who lambasted Zupan for mislabeling Sanders as a communist when in reality, as the caller said, he is a democratic socialist. Standing alone, this particular example may seem inconsequential, but when you add it up, when you put together the interviews and the calls and the comments, one can infer that VPR was implicitly undermining Zupan's credibility. By the way, communism and democratic socialism are different forms of organizing government, but both follow socialism as the underlying economic ideology. Further, democratic socialism, as Bernie Sanders uses it, is little more than euphemism. In any case, it is a misnomer. What he actually means is social democracy. He is a social democrat, not a democratic socialist, which just goes to show how inane this conversation really is. And yet, the former self-professed communist has been representing the state of Vermont in D.C. in some form or the other since 1991. Now let's consider an example of how news is reported by the local media. A few days ago, Vermont Digger published an article about the suicide rate of veterans in Vermont, reporting that it is the highest in the nation. The article attributes this situation to a high rate of gun ownership and difficulty of integrating into a largely rural society. The news report starts with the tragic story of Josh Palada, who served in Afghanistan. When he returned from deployment, Josh got a job making sandwiches and mopping the floor in a local business. His mother, Valerie, said that he really liked it and he was very good at it. However, the business closed. What do I do now, Josh said to Valerie, and when he felt that he had very few choices left, he lost his motivation, meaning, and purpose in life. In September 2014, he ended his life at the age of 25. The article, in fact, identifies the real problem that Vermonters face, a dying economy with very few opportunities to make a career as more and more local businesses shut down or leave the state due to high taxes and cumbersome regulations. But this news report says nothing more about Vermont's economic conditions. Instead, the rest of the article is peppered with quotes from supposed experts that blame high gun ownership for the suicide rate in the state. One such expert is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Vermont. I have no clue what makes a pediatrics professor an authority on veterans, firearms, or suicide. In any case, here is his expert take on the issue. Quote, People just go into a gun shop, 
pass the background check and walk out with a gun. It's one stop, one step, end quote. A more malicious insinuation in the article is the implicit assertion that members of the U.S. military engage in immoral actions abroad. Later on in the report, we learn about Matija Gubik, who served with Josh Pallada in Afghanistan, and Joshua Gerasimov, a 39-year-old veteran who served in Kosovo. Here is a statement from the article. Quote, Just like Gubik, Gerasimov said he has been affected by what he experienced in deployment and what is known as a moral injury, that is, the emotional impact of actions that are against one's moral values, end quote. Gerasimov recalls what his father, a Vietnam veteran, told him. Quote, whatever happened abroad, you put that in a box, you put that under your bed, and you leave it there, end quote. So what is the insinuation here? What exactly did U.S. soldiers do in Vietnam that they need to box up in order to survive? There are numerous ideological assumptions here that one can easily read between the lines. Anti-Second Amendment and anti-U.S. military sentiments. No wonder that 66% of Americans believe news media do not do a good job of separating fact from opinion. We've only scratched the surface here. In coming episodes, I will share many more examples of how Vermont journalists choose to frame key sociopolitical issues and shape audience perceptions to the detriment of the right. For more political analysis and an examination of the issues in a state run by the far left, stay tuned for more episodes. I'm super thrilled to share that the podcast is now available on iTunes, so make sure to subscribe for new episodes every Tuesday with bonus Thursday thoughts. Write to me at megpodcast at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook on my Facebook page, Dialogues with Meg Hansen, where you can watch interviews from my TV show. Until next time, I'm Meg Hansen. And you've been listening to Writing What's Left.